we have children that would like to go to our children's ministry time, kid men, they can go out the back door there now. The rest of you go ahead and open to Nehemiah chapter 6. It's uh, really thrilling for me to be able to continue to march through this book of uh, Nehemiah with you, this amazing story of how God used a man who was completely surrendered to him to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, encourage and protect the people of God, and ultimately bring God glory in the midst of a hostile environment. Nehemiah chapter 6 is where we come to today. Last week, I covered in chapter 5, where we saw Nehemiah dealing with a financial crisis that had hit the middle of this massive building project to build the walls of Jerusalem. The people were mistreating each other with money, something we, I'm sure, could say we know a little bit about today. The rich were preying on the poor. There was lack of food due to the famine going on in the land. And the people were having to borrow money to pay the king's tax, and all of this made it very, very hard. So the people raised an outcry, and Nehemiah was frustrated at first, but realized that he and his associates were implicated as well. So they repented of this behavior and they made it right with the people and continued on in the mission that God had set before them. And that brings us to chapter 6, where we're going to see some old familiar faces pop up once again, some old familiar characters in this story who are going to again rise up and try to cause some trouble. We'll begin reading in verse 1. And before I start reading, I just want to say, you know, oftentimes... People have been asked if there was one character in the Bible who you could hang out with, who you could sit down and uh, over a coffee or whatever, and just one person that you could spend some time with, who would that be? And, you know, outside of, of course, Jesus, okay? Uh, and most people will say something like, well, Paul or Moses or John or Elijah or whatever. Um, and, and those, I think, are definitely on the list of possibilities, but a guy who would be on my list of possibilities after this after going through roughly almost half of this book so far, is Nehemiah because of the way he responded to some of the things that came uh, before him. I think he might be kind of a fun hang. And so anyway, let's begin by reading in Nehemiah with that in mind, chapter 6, and we're going to read the whole thing. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not yet set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come and let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and, Gesh and Geshem also says, that, says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall, and according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. 
For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deli, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, Should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I should go to the, into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I, understood, and I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, and his son Johanan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask God to bless us with understanding and help us apply it to our lives. Lord God, as we come, we come to your word. Let us come with open minds and open hearts that we would not bring anything to it, but that we would take from it what you have put there, that you would help us understand, and you would help us to apply it to our lives, that you would use it to make us more like you. Father, I pray I would decrease, that you would increase, that, that this message, God, this is about you. Lord Jesus, be big here. If there's anything that's, that's just me um, that you don't want in there, clear it out. And help me be clear and faithful. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So three enemies have returned with some trickeration, shall we say. This is point number one in your outline is there's tricky opposition. Right? They're tricky in their opposition. Three enemies have returned. Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. They were mocking, they were anti-Jewish, they were against the Jews, they were against anybody who had the Jews' best interest at heart. And they had already, in our story, they had already shown who they were and what they were all about. So let's talk about each of these guys individually, give you a little more detail about who they were, because it's going to help us understand some things as we go further along. First is Sanballat. His name is Babylonian in nature. And in other places, he's referred to as a Horonite, and that would make him a native of a place called Beth Horon, which was about 18 miles northwest of Jerusalem. And based on historical records and the fact that his two sons had Jewish names, so based on that, scholars suggest that he was probably married to a Jewish woman, but that he himself was not Jewish. He was an ambitious politician and ruler who wanted 
very much to win the approval of his Persian overseers. He wanted the king to be happy with him because making the king happy with you gets you to advance. And here he was having trouble in Jerusalem, basically right at his back door, and it was not what he needed to advance his position and approval among the Persians. Ironically to this, his daughter, as we'll find out in chapter 13 later on in the book, married the son of the high priest Eliashib. Now knowing that biography of Sanballat it helps us, it helps what he does make sense to us as we read who he was, what he was about. Now on to Tobiah. Tobiah's name is Jewish. Tobiah had family connections because his son married the daughter of a high-ranking Jerusalem official. And this gets to be a problem for Nehemiah eventually because the upper levels of society in the city think of Tobiah as one of their own. He may have already been governor of Ammon, uh, Ammon at this point. He, of course, would want to protect his political reputation with the higher-ups by conspiring against Nehemiah and the work going on in the city. Uh, Commentator Derek Thomas says this, Tobiah's employment of religious slogans might appear as evidence of a godly heart, but it is nothing of the sort. It is merely a utilitarian device for political ambition and greed. You ever heard anybody use religious slogans (laughs) for utilitarian purposes or to advance their political ambition and greed? Surely not today we wouldn't hear people doing that. I mean, we hear politicians, it doesn't matter what side of the aisle, you hear politicians all the time quoting the Bible, incorrectly, I might add, mostly, or out of context. So that's Tobiah. That's Tobiah. Not evidence of a godly heart when he says those things. He's, he's, he's ambitious, just like Sanballat. And then we come to Geshem the Arab. Geshem the Arab. Many commentators believe that Geshem was probably the most powerful of these three guys. He and his sons were rulers of a group of Arabian tribes that had overtaken Edom and Moab, which were Judah's neighbors to the east and the south. He also had control of territories to the southwest. So you get this trio of leaders with their rule and their control and their ambition and the influence they think they should have in Jerusalem and you get them opposing Nehemiah. They're opposing Nehemiah. They're opposing God's people. It says earlier they were against the welfare, anyone doing good to the people, to God's people, to the people of Israel. But the bigger problem, and we've covered this in weeks past, is they weren't just enemies of the people of God. They were setting themselves up as opposing the triune God of Israel. Right? So we have a triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three in one. And here you have three enemies really opposing God. Now these guys had lost round one with their attempt to dissuade Nehemiah from building the wall with a threat of attack. Now it was time for round two. Hey, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again, I guess, was their motive. I don't know. Or their motto, maybe. I don't know. They invite him. They send letters, or send, they send for him. I, by the way, They sent to him, and they invite him to this neutral site. There's a lot of, as I was reading this, what I was saying, by the way, there's a lot of sending back and forth. There's a lot of letter writing, a lot of sending, a lot of messages. They didn't have email. 
or texting, okay? So there's a lot of sending of back and forth. And some of these distances, I'm like, how long did some of these things take? But they send to him and they say, hey, come on out. We'll go to this, you know, neutral site on the plain of Ono for a political summit of sorts. And we're going to, we'll talk about the issues between us. Now, that place that's listed there is about 27 miles northwest of Jerusalem. So it's a bit of a journey. Looking at the invitation, it might on its surface sound like they were ready to compromise, to concede something, to sort of say, hey, let's, let's go ahead and make peace. But Nehemiah sensed that it was a lure and there was an ambush waiting for him and his response to that was immediate. They're gonna, they want to do me harm, right? Look at verse 2. Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come and let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. He realized that they were intending to attack him or do him harm in some way. He saw the danger, and when he understood that, he knew what their motives was. He, he saw, motives, excuse me, were. He knew what their plan was or understood it, uh, that they were meaning to do him harm. Therefore, his response was firm. It was unflinching. Some might say, courageous. And this is this sentence right here, this, this verse, is part of the reason why I think he would be a good hang. Nehemiah 6 verse 3, he says, and I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? In other words, in other words, I got something more important to do than talk to you. I'm working on something more important. This was not their first run in. Nehemiah understood that what they wanted was to stop him from working on the wall. What would he have gained by going? What would he have gained by going? Let's say it was an actual neutral talk. What would he have gained by going? Because he would have slowed down the work on the wall either way. He had nothing to gain and really everything to lose because they were going to attack him. He knew there was no common ground, and he'd been given a task by God to do. He was assured of what his task was given by God. The decisions that Nehemiah made were based on seeing his mission accomplished and not by what he might gain or lose by it. So he made decisions based on accomplishing the mission that God had put before him, not on weighing out gains and losses and pros and cons. Okay, we look at it, we're like, well, he had nothing to gain, he had everything to lose. But his decision was made based on something different. It was based on obedience to what God had sent him to Jerusalem to do. Folks, the world around us does not understand the way Christians are to make decisions. Have you ever made a decision in your life believing that was the godly decision and people around you did not understand why you would do that. The, the world does not understand that the decisions of a Christian are not bound up or should not be bound up solely in personal ambition or aspirations, but should be bound up in the advancement of the glory of God, the advancement of the kingdom. Nehemiah's magnetic attachment to the mission is the fruit 
of a heart that is completely surrendered to God. I call it a magnetic attachment. And in my notes, <clears throat> I started doing, using this app as I do my sermon prep. And I put the scripture in there after I've marked it up. I take a picture, put it in there. And then I can draw shapes and bubbles and sticky notes and all this stuff around on it and just kind of organize my mind. It looks like a mess. It looks like you would look at it and it looks like I'm a serial killer or something. Um, you know, with the, the yarn and the consp- you know, conspiracy or something like that. But it's really, I really love the way I do it. But in this part, I found a graphic of a magnet and I put a magnet there to remind me that he was magnetically attached to the mission, that he kept being drawn back to the mission, he kept being drawn back to God and away from anything that might detract from that. And the reason was that he had that, that constant pull to the mission of God was because it's the fruit of a heart that is completely surrendered to God. A heart that says, I don't care what happens over here, or over here. I know I'm supposed to be about this right here. This is what God wants me to focus on. And he did it. Now imagine in our lives if we had that kind of focus. That type of magnetic attachment to the mission of God. What would that look like in our lives? What would that look like in the life of our church? Said he had a great work to do. And he did have a great work to do. You know what's funny about that that phrase, great work? The world did not see it as a great work. The world around him didn't look and say, oh, this is a great work. In fact... Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, they thought it was a pretty bad work for them. The world didn't see it as great. The world's opinion of the work is not what made it great. Hear that. We have a great work to do in making disciples. And the world's opinion of that, whether they think it's great or not, is not what makes it great. What makes it great is it's the mission, it's the work that God put before each of us to do. So he had tricky opposition. Secondly, he had some talking opposition. I feel like these guys had a lot of words to say. So that didn't work to invite him out, even after four times. They invite him four times. He answered the same way each time. When their initial plan doesn't work, their deception didn't work, they decide to try slander. I can't get what I want tricking the guy, so we'll slander him. Well, how do they go about doing that? Well, they send him a letter, an open letter, by the way. An open letter was a letter that was not sealed. Anybody could read it. Anybody could open and read it. So if, you know, if somebody stopped and wanted to read this, hey, that's fine. We'll let as many people as we want read the letter. So they send him this open letter with the promise that the king will hear the things that are in the letter. In fact, they would make sure that the king heard all of the stuff in the letter. And the letter they sent to Nehemiah made the declaration that the Jews were plotting a rebellion. They were trying to crown Nehemiah king. And they were on their way to declaring their independence from Persia. And it is a steep accusation. And it's thoroughly untrue. And we know 
In the past, in the book of Ezra, at one point, Artaxerxes had believed an accusation like this before. So, if Nehemiah doesn't attend their little meeting, the threat is they're going to tell the king all of these things. They were trying to back Nehemiah into a corner so that he had to meet with them. He had to come out and meet with them, and then they could deal with them. Can you imagine the news coming back after that meeting? Oh, sorry to say, Nehemiah on his way back fell in a hole and uh, unfortunately hit his head, and, and he, is, uh, he is no longer with us. Very, very sorry. He was backed into a corner, but he still refused. Now, the prophets, who had apparently become active again, did prophesy that a king would come to Jerusalem. The Jews were expecting someone who would come like David, trample all of his enemies under his feet. They were expecting a political or a military-minded king, and therefore, those prophecies were read as suggesting that a revolution was imminent or was the intent. But the king that was coming was the Messiah, not a political revolutionary, but as a suffering servant come to die to atone for their sins. Jesus was the fulfillment of all of those prophecies. They were misunderstood then, and this accusation continued into the time of Jesus as well. The people, when Jesus came in the New Testament, the people were expecting a general, a military leader, a king to overthrow Rome. Instead, they got a baby born of a virgin who grew, lived a sinless life, taught the people about the kingdom of God and to repent of their sins, and then gave that life on the cross for their sins as a substitute, as an, a sacrifice, an atonement. And so Nehemiah gets accused of this, and he outright, flat out denies their accusation. He calls out the lies as untrue. He doesn't respond with retaliation and revenge. He certainly doesn't kowtow and say, oh, nothing I can do about it. But he is patient and careful in his denial. This is how Christians should respond to these type of attacks. Okay? Not to get on Twitter and turn on the flamethrower, okay? Not not to sub, not to like, you know, uh, what do they call it? Subtweeting on, on Facebook when you're talking about somebody, but you never say who you're talking about or their name, but you know they can see it. You know other people can see it. Or when you talk about somebody, kind of on the down low to somebody over coffee or at church or something. That's not how we should respond. Nehemiah doesn't retaliate. He doesn't get for, go for revenge. He entrusts it to God's hands. He is patient and careful with his denial of the accusations. He doesn't let the lie stand. He tells the truth, and he moves forward on the mission. Lest you and I think that this did not affect Nehemiah in some way, look at verse 9. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work, and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. It did bother him that, I mean, there is a risk there, right? It did bother him. And so what did he do? 
He prayed to God for strength to keep going. He turned to God in prayer. This was a confession of his weakness. He knew that there was a possibility the king might believe these accusations. He might face questions from his own friends raised by these accusations. He turned to the one who knew his true heart and knew what the intentions of his heart were. He turned to God and he asked for strength to keep working on the mission. He still had work to do and he knew that he could not accomplish it alone and actually later on we'll see the enemies knew he didn't accomplish it on his own too. He needed the Lord. He needed the Lord. So they're sending the open letter trying to intimidate him didn't work. So they've tried trickery, a ruse. They've tried, um, they've tried a threat of, of slander. Now third, we find treachery inside the city. Treachery inside. As if enemies on the outside weren't bad enough to discourage Nehemiah and halt his activity, they've secretly enlisted the help of Shemaiah, a prophet. So Nehemiah goes down to this guy's house. The text says that he was confined to his home. So he tells Nehemiah that the enemy is coming to kill him in the night and he should go with him to hide in the temple. Well, Nehemiah is a wise man. He's also a courageous man. And he sees what's going on. Here's what verses 11 and 12 tell us. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I should go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. Their purpose was to get the prophet to deliver this alarming news to Nehemiah and for it to make him afraid for his life and out of that fear that he would sin, that they would give him a bad name in order to taunt him. That's what they were trying to do. It's all in verse 13. Remember that Nehemiah is a man who has a firm sense of his mission that was given to him by God. He's working for God's glory and he trusts God to protect him and see the mission through to completion. And he's seen God thwart the advances of the opposition and he will not bow to their fear and intimidation now. He saw through it. He saw this guy wasn't from God. This guy was hired by the enemy to discourage him. How disheartening. How disheartening it is when we face betrayal from the people on the inside. This man should have been encouraging the work and not trying to stop it because he was being paid. He should have been encouraging the work. And yet he was trying to stop it, to scare him, working with the enemy because he was being paid. And so we see selfish motives at work in the heart of Shemaiah. He was doing it because he was hired for a paycheck. We may also face those who with false motives would try to get us to do their bidding instead of staying focused on what God has called us to do. The Apostle John speaks to this in 1 John 4, verse 1. It says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. There are many false prophets in the world. 
There are many who would come and would tell you, even try to be in your church, who would tell you they have a, a message from God, and they are not. This is a very real thing that we still face. In verse 14, Nehemiah prays again. He wants justice done to the enemies of God. We've seen this before. Those who work against God and God's people will face justice. God will not be mocked. Eventually, if they do not repent, there will be an account given. They will face the Lord for what they have done. So the stakes here are very high indeed for them, even if they don't realize it. Their deception and betrayal did not work. And in verse 15, we see triumph. We see triumph. The wall was finished in 52 days. 52 days. When the enemies heard about it, guess what? They were afraid. Now the walls were up, and they would have a much harder time trying to win the city. Nehemiah's plan was succeeding. They were thwarted. Do you see the flip-flop there? Do you see the flip-flop? The enemy, they were trying to make Israel afraid, but they're the ones who ended up afraid when God's plan succeeded. Look at verse 16. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nation around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. That last phrase is key. Their enemies knew that this had been done with God. Men had built the wall and God had built the wall at the same time. This is what happens in providence. And one, one scholar said that's the language of providence. To borrow from what Derek Thomas writes about this, Nehemiah had witnessed a work of the Holy Spirit that gave success to God's word and joy to God's people. And this happened in the face of opposition and difficulty that affected the Jews and those around them, and it brought the community a sense of God's overwhelming presence that even filled God's enemies with fear. To be short, it was revival. God's word was lifted up, and God's people were brought joy. As we round out chapter 6, we see that old Tobiah is still an issue. He's not gone away. Some of the people seem to think Tobiah was an all right guy based on his familial connections to them. They thought he's kind of one of them. They would report to him how Nehemiah was leading and he would send letters to try and make Nehemiah afraid. I picture the businessmen standing on the corner talking about Nehemiah, sending their reports to Tobiah and Tobiah sent in letters to Nehemiah to try and scare him. So what do we do with that? Like we look at it, we're like, wow, that is, a, that is an incredible story of what God had done. Well, for those who are following God's leadership and living according to his word, those who trusted Christ, there will always be opposition. Always. Guaranteed. Jesus promised us we would face suffering and persecution. And yet, instead of buckling in harder and standing firm in prayer on the word of God and with courage, too often 
we run or we compromise or we don't speak up. What was it about Nehemiah? What was it about Nehemiah that made him such a bold and courageous leader? It wasn't that he was abnormally wealthy, although he was a wealthy guy. It wasn't, that wasn't what made him a good leader, a bold and courageous leader. It wasn't that he was a great fighter. We don't know. I mean, I, so far I haven't read that, I don't think, whether he was a fighter or a good fighter or not. So we don't know that. He was the cupbearer for the king. That doesn't necessarily make him a bold and courageous leader. What was it about Nehemiah that made him such a bold and courageous leader? It was three things, really. First, he was a man of the word. He was a man of the word of God. He had studied, he knew the word of God. And he took God at his word. He believed the prophecies that God would restore. He was a man of the word. Second, he was a man of prayer. We see it time and time again. There's an issue. Nehemiah calls out to God. Sometimes it's longer. Sometimes it's shorter. But he's calling out to God for wisdom, for strength, for justice. He calls out to God. So what made him a bold and courageous leader? He was a man of the word. He was a man of prayer. And third is inseparably connected to those two. And that's this. He was sold out to the mission that God had set him on. He was sold out to the mission that God had put him on. The opposition he faced was a group of people who were aligned against him for their own political and personal interests. They were up against him because he was going to restore the walls and build up the people of Jerusalem, God's people. And the people knew their history. They knew what happened when Jerusalem was a standing city. And they knew that God was accomplishing this through him. And yet they had opposed him because it went against their interests. If the people are back and they're worshiping their God and they're serving in Jerusalem and they're being built up and their God is with them, that's going to affect the way these guys are seen by their higher-ups. It's going to affect, they're not going to have control over the situation. So I wonder where else, where else do we see people aligned in conflict with God over their own personal or political interests? Anywhere in Scripture you can think of. Well, we see it in the alliance of the Jewish leaders and the Roman authorities in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The Jewish leaders were afraid of Jesus causing them to lose their position or their name with the people. They had power and control, and they didn't want to give it up. The Romans didn't want an uprising of Jews because it would cause them to lose their standing with their, with their rulers. Pilate didn't want that because he didn't want that to affect his standing with Herod if the Jews rose up. And so they worked in concert with one another to bring charges against Jesus and crucify him. A man who had done nothing wrong, who was not guilty of anything that they accused him of, was hung on a cross. He claimed he was God, and he is. He lived a perfect and sinless life. He revealed God to the people. He was the word of God made flesh. He offered life and forgiveness for sin 
and they accused him and killed him. We understand, as Scripture tells us, that his death on the cross was sufficient to atone for all of our sin. And if we place our faith, our hope, and our trust in his death on the cross and repent of our sin, that he will forgive us and give us his righteousness, his right standing before God put upon us. And to prove that he'd won, to prove that God did do it, he raised from the grave three days later, fully dead to fully alive. There's always opposition to the work of God, always, but God always wins in the end. It was a bloody end, to be sure, and it cost Jesus his life, but God's mission was accomplished, and he rose to new life, and he ascended into heaven, and he will return again for that final victory that's already won. So what tactics does the enemy use? Well, we saw them. We saw them. They were used with Nehemiah, right? We see them with Jesus. They're used against Jesus. He uses tricks, right? Deception, fear, offering a fake peace, threats, physical harm, invasion, betrayal, buying off a guy on the inside to do their bidding. Do we see those things in the life of Christ? The opposition that came against him. Here's a question for you. Because we don't like it when people come against us, right? We don't like it when people oppose us or oppose us because of Christ. If they used all of this on Nehemiah, and these tactics were used against Jesus, why would we, why should we expect anything different? Why should we expect anything different than what they did to Jesus? So what do we do about it? Like, we walk out of here, and that's our reality we live in. What do we do with it? Well, what did Nehemiah do? Well, he prayed, and he stayed on mission. Man of the word, man of prayer, and staying on mission. Pastor, that seems really simple. I, I need something more nuanced. It, it kind of is that simple, actually. I didn't say it was easy, but simple. Prayer, the word, and staying on mission. Well, what did Jesus do? How did Jesus deal with that? Well, he trusted the Father. He prayed. He stayed on mission. And when he was come against in temptation, what did he do? He quoted the word. We see this, this meaning of opposition not a shrinking back, but not, not a revenge or retaliation either. It's a standing firm upon the truth. So let me ask you this question as we sort of round out towards the end. What work are you doing that could be called a great work? Would you describe the work you're doing as a great work? See, build, making disciples, which, by the way, is the work we should be doing, making disciples isn't something that can be measured like building a wall, right? You build a wall, you can measure that, you can measure that like, okay, yesterday we were at two feet, today we're at three feet, so we can measure, like, there's progress there, right? 
Spiritual growth's a little bit harder to measure. There's not really any metrics for it, right? But just because the world doesn't have a metric for it doesn't mean it's not a great work. Just like the people didn't think building the wall was a great work, but it was indeed a great work. I also want to say this. Nehemiah was not worried about his safety, but about his obedience to what God had called him to do. He wasn't reckless, okay? He was not reckless. But he was obedient above all. Because he loved God above all. So what are you doing? Would you describe it as a great work? Would you describe all the distractions of, I don't have time for those distractions because I've got a great work I'm doing here. And second thing is I want you to look at Nehemiah's worldview because his stance represents a worldview. And it's one where a commitment to truth and principle in doctrine and in ethics, that means what we believe and what we do, can make him appear to be mean-spirited, intolerant, and as the world's favorite insult says, bigoted which he was not, but at least in their eyes, that type of a worldview that stands on truth, commitment to truth, and principle and doctrine and ethics can make the world uh, seem to think you are mean-spirited, intolerant, or bigoted, at least in their eyes. What is often let out, what they often leave out of that when they complain and say those things is that their opposition to it is equally defiant in their own views. It's conveniently left out that their opposition is equal in the opposite direction. But today in our culture, think about ways that this pops up in the issues we deal with in our culture. Same-sex marriage, abortion, education curriculum, etc., etc., Our commitment to principle and refusal to compromise biblical standards will look like rigidity and intolerance to them. We'll be ostracized and looked down upon. We need to be standard bearers like Nehemiah. We have to stand as Martin Luther did at the Diet of Worms in 1521 and say, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, I cannot And I will not retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. We should stand on the truth. Nehemiah did. Jesus did. Without compromise. And I'm just going to be real square with you. It might cost you everything. It might cost you your life. But are we more concerned about safety, comfort? Are we more concerned about the mission, the great work that God has given us to do? So how will you respond today? Will you stand firm? Will you stand firm in a commitment to the truth? To your commitment to seeing the mission accomplished? Or will you give in? That's what we need to respond to today in our hearts to God and in our lives as we go out and live.
Would you stand and pray with me this morning? Lord God, as we come to this time, I pray that we use the message of the word to draw us close to you. Help us believe the truth that is in your word, to trust you, to take you at your word. I pray you would encourage our hearts to help us stand firm upon the truth of your word, upon the truth of the gospel, because we're not bigoted, but we just love you more, Jesus. Are we intolerant of lies? Yeah, because we want people to know the truth. Where others see rigidity, let us just show ourselves as firm, sharing the truth in love and being dedicated to your mission, the commission, above all. May we not get distracted by the world. May we not be led astray by deception. Help us to see through it and to see clearly and see where you are leading, Jesus. And it's in your holy and blessed name I pray. Amen. Let's sing again together.